You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, we love the Bible here at RCC, and our regular weekly diet is to go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We find ourselves eating this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 27, 28. You know, occasionally we'll do a, you know, we'll go out to eat, do a topical series, but this morning we've got a good home-cooked meal on Acts 27, 28, and a series we call Movement. Like I said, we started in January. This is 39 weeks in. Next week is our last week in Acts, week 40. And uh, you might be new, picking up with us, we're really glad you're here. The book of Acts, just to give you a brief synopsis, is the story, is the history of the church. You know, Jesus died for our sins, rose from the grave victoriously, defeating death, defeating the grave, defeating Satan. And then he sends his followers to the ends of the earth to tell them about this good news, that he was everything we could not be on our own. Trust in him, repent, believe, be saved by him. And, well, here at Acts 27 and 28, Paul reaches the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Here we are, the city of Rome. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus promised that Paul would get to Rome. But it's been two and a half years. Could you imagine waiting two and a half years for something? Maybe you are. Maybe you have. Paul has. And he finally gets the promise fulfilled. He reaches the city of Rome. But he doesn't reach it without a lot of pain. Much, Much like, like we, we don't, don't get, get to our final destination, heaven, without a lot of pain. If you're a Christian this morning, getting to heaven without suffering is kind of like trying to get a PhD without studying. It's not really going to happen. It kind of comes with a package. Well, we see Paul going through a lot of suffering before he gets to Rome. In fact, you know the scholars call the end of Acts the sufferings of Paul? Like, if Acts... Like, like 23 to 28 were a cartoon, and I think it'd be Wiley Coyote. Because Paul's getting hit after hit. He's got animals falling on him all over the place, man. He's got prison sentences. He's got defense trials. He's got riots. He's got shipwrecks. He's got snake bites. It's just a lot. And as if that wasn't enough, in Acts 27, Paul's caught up in a hurricane. Which, Which, could you imagine being on a dinky ship in the middle of the Mediterranean during a hurricane? Uh, you know we're in hurricane season right now. It's October. In fact, this text we're reading happened to be the Day of Atonement, and it was also in the month of October that Paul went through this. So we're in actually the same season as this text. And you know what hurricanes are like, right? I mean, Hurricane Ian just hit Florida, and the, 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 the chaos, the, the damage was catastrophic. You know, you know, there, there were winds up to 155 miles an hour during Hurricane Ian. You know, scientists say that if you're in winds of 130 miles an hour, it is not possible for a human being to breathe. You can't even speak. It's enough wind to pick up a home. A hurricane is no joke, man. There was 21.6 inches of rain in Hurricane Ian. There were storm surges as high as 18 feet high. 6,000 flights were canceled. 7 million people were evacuated. There were 3.4 million power outages. And there are currently 42,000 utility workers still trying to repair power or restore power in Florida. $60 billion worth of damages and 111 people at least died from that hurricane. Well, that is quite an impact. Paul's stuck in a storm like that. 
Have you, you ever seen, seen that old movie, The Perfect Storm? Storm? That's, That's a classic, man. Well, this, well, this is, is first century Perfect Storm. Storm. Verse 14, Luke calls this storm in the Greek a typhonicus, which literally means a hurricane. And so, you might read this text and go, okay, Paul's stuck in a hurricane on the Mediterranean, going on a prison ship to Rome. What does that have to do with my life? Well, you're probably not going to be on a prison ship going to Rome, but you will face storms in your life, right? All the suffering we face in this life is, in a sense, a type of storm. And, and watching Paul deal with his storm teaches us how we can deal with ours. I know a lot of you, I've talked to many of you this week, you're facing some storms right now. Sick kids, struggling jobs, difficult parents, broken bodies, death of loved ones, financial struggles, relational conflict. And those are some storms. Paul teaches us how we deal with them. How do we get through, them, through the other side? And here's the dominant idea of the text. The dominant idea is God keeps his word. That's what we need to know. He keeps his word. And we need to hear that over and over and over again, don't we? That God does not play psych. God does not lead Corso on ESPN game day. Making a prediction that probably comes true. He was right about Tennessee beating Alabama. Praise the Lord. We can all rejoice and celebrate. But God's not making predictions. He's making proclamations. He told Paul in Acts 23.11, you're going to get to Rome, Paul, I promise. And you read all this, including this hurricane, and you're like, is he going to get to Rome? And the answer, of course, is yes, he is. It's going to be quite a journey. It's not like a you know, point A to point B type journey, much like our lives, but it gets there. You know, the trip from Caesarea to Rome usually took five weeks. It takes Paul four months. A lot, a lot of twists, twists and turns. But God sustains Paul and he gets him there through the storm. And he does it through four things. He does it through and with the people of God, the paradox of God, the presence of God, and the promise of God. If you're going to get through your storms, you need some people, you need a good paradox, you need the presence of God, and you need a promise from God. And this will teach us how we deal with our trials and storms. Let's start with number one, the people of God. So we pick up in 27 verse 1, and Paul has seen more trials than Judge Judy, hasn't he? I mean, this guy has been through the thick of it. He's made a bunch of defense speeches. He's finally about to appeal before Caesar in Rome, and he has to get there, though, right? So Festus and Agrippa, these two commanders, governors, send Paul to Rome through this Augustan cohort centurion named Julius. So they're going to take a prison ship to Rome, and, and I, I want, want you to notice who is with Paul during this story, this narrative. Verse 2. So they set sail in a ship of uh, whatever, Adramitium, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea accompanied by who? Aristarchus. That's a great name, isn't it? Aristarchus. A Macedonian from Thessalonica. You know, now, this is not the first time we actually met Aristarchus. We met him in Acts chapter 19. You remember what happened in Acts 19? It was the riot in Ephesus. Paul was preaching the gospel in this secular city, and a mob attacks him. And guess who's with Paul during that mob attacking him? This dude, Aristarchus. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts 19 that Aristarchus was dragged by the mob who were trying to kill him for preaching the gospel. 
I mean, I mean that, that is some, some deep level friendship, friendship right, right there. there. You don't want to be dragged by a mob before you abandon your friend. You tend to find out who your real friends are in a fight, don't you? Well, Aristarchus sticks with Paul during a riot. If you get a friend like Aristarchus next to you, why don't you give him a little tap? Like, yo, I got your back. Boy, man, this is, it's tough out here. Let's get each other's back, man. I got you. Now, here's my question as we think about our Aristarchus. Really, the honest thing about this, was Aristarchus in captivity with Paul? Was he under arrest by Rome? No. Did Aristarchus have to get on this prison ship with Paul? No. Did he have to succumb himself to a trip across the Mediterranean during hurricane season? No. Did Aristarchus have to be such a loyal friend to Paul? No. But that's what people in the church do for each other, isn't it? We don't bail on each other when it gets hard. But sadly, we live in an era, don't we, where the minute I don't agree with your political ideals, or I offend you a little bit, peace, I'm going down the street. But we see here a guy who's like, oh, hurricane? Sure. Riot? I got your back. Prison sentence? I'm not going anywhere, Paul. And it's not just Aristarchus. This is normal in the book of Acts. If you look at verse 1, notice the pronouns. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail freely, we should go to Rome. Do you notice that? It doesn't say Paul. It says we. Why? Because the author of Acts, Luke, is with Paul. Luke isn't just writing the story. He's living it. I mean, these are some loyal friends, aren't they? They're sticking with Paul through all the sufferings. I ain't going anywhere. I'm with you. Paul's got those Rihanna-level friendships. You ever heard the song, Umbrella? That's a great song about friendship, man. When the sunshine we shine together, told you I'll be here forever. Said I'll always be your friend. Took an oath, I'm going to stick it out to the end. Umbrella, Ella, Ella, hey, hey, hey. You know that's a song about friendship? Rihanna's like, I'm your umbrella. Listen to Aunt Riri, friends. You need some umbrellas. You need some Luke's and Aristarchus in your life, don't you? I know there's some older folks in the group. Thank you for being here. We got a lot of young people. For you, it's the Beatles. You know, I get by with a little help from my friends. We got something for every generation. All right, for you young Gen Z folks, I don't know what I got for you. Uh, this like Little Nas X or something, I, I don't know. My point is, is that these friendships, these church membership relationships aren't very fickle, are they? They're rock solid. You know, there's a scene in Lord of the Rings where Frodo is tasked with bearing the ring of power alone, and he has to take it to, through mortar to the foot of Mount Doom and, and throw it into this fire to destroy the ring to save Middle Earth. And Frodo, just so burdened with this task, doesn't want his friends to have to suffer along with him. He knows it's his job. So in the Fellowship of the Ring, he sneaks off away from his group of friends, gets in a canoe and sails, uh, sails down the river so he can do this task alone. But his good friend, Samwise Gamgee, who's a bit of a fool, but a good friend. 
he finds that Frodo is missing, and he's just running after him. He refuses to let Frodo handle this task alone, and Sam catches with Frodo, and Frodo's you know paddling down the river, and Frodo is yelling to Sam, "I'm going to Mordor alone. Let me go, Sam." You know, Sam yells back, "Of course you are, and I'm coming with you." And Sam, who cannot swim, dies in the river. Sam would rather risk drowning than let his friend suffer alone. And Frodo has to jump in the river to save him, and they head to Mordor together. And they finally, at the end of the book, reach the foot of Mount Doom, and Frodo is so torn apart, so broken down by the ring, that he can't move another inch. He collapses into the dirt. And you know what Sam's friend says to him? Knowing Frodo can't go another inch, Sam says to Frodo, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. I can't carry what you're you're burdened with, but I can carry you. And he puts his beloved friend on his back and climbs up the steep slopes of Mount Doom, and the ring is destroyed. That's what the people of God do for one another. That's what Luke and Aaron's darkness do for Paul. And you see, if you're ever going to make it to Rome, if you're ever going to make it through the storms of life to heaven, you're going to need some Sam's. You're going to need some Luke's. You're going to need some Aristarchus's. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, will you be my Aristarchus? That's what church is actually supposed to be. Think less festival, think more family. It's not people who like, it's not like we're in a movie theater and you just happen to be sitting next to the person you're sitting next to listening to me talk and bye, see you next movie. It's more like a family reunion where you get together and like, these are my people. These are my Luke's, these are my Aristarchus's. That's what God envisions for your church family. But sadly, what it's become is an event. Luke and Aristarchus, they're like riots in Ephesus. Let's riot all. Prison for two and a half years. I'll see you every Tuesday and Wednesday night. Brutal prison voyages to Rome. Save a seat for me, Paul. This is not a cruise. There aren't any waiters like, hey, you want a mojito? This is a prison ship. I'm coming with you, Paul. Hurricanes? I can't carry you, Paul. I can't carry what you're, you're tasked with, Paul, but I can carry you. Do you have friends like this? Are you that kind of friend? That's God's vision for the church. And I want to encourage you, this room right now is full of Luke's and Aristarchus's, and Priscilla's, and Aquila's, and Philemon's, and Timothy's, and Titus's, people that will have your back. We don't abandon each other. We have each other's back. We enter into the storms of life with one another. Why? Because we have been made friends through our eternal friendship with Jesus Christ. We have the same father, so that makes you brother or sister. And it means I'm called to care for you. Even if you give nothing to me. 
In fact, did you know in, later on in chapter 28, this next chapter, verse 15, when Paul finally gets to Rome, you know who's there to greet Paul when he gets to Rome on the outskirts of the city? Other Christians. And you can just dive into this text and find that these walked to meet Paul in Rome. They walked 40 miles to make sure Paul didn't feel alone, that he was cared for when he got to Rome. I mean, honestly, the Baltimore Marathon was yesterday. Would you run the Baltimore Marathon to encourage someone in this church? Ooh, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'd run the 5K for someone in this church. Like, these Christians are willing to walk the distance from here to the White House. So Paul will not be alone. I struggle to walk to Fells Point for someone. You know, this summer I, I was on vacation in Hawaii, and my wife and I, uh, there was one thing she wanted to do in Hawaii, sunset dinner cruise. I was like, oh, that sounds magical. Let's do it. Sunset dinner cruise. Except they didn't have in the terms conditions that be aware of seasickness. Like, they put us on a freaking catamaran. And it was not a sunset dinner cruise. It was a sunset dinner voyage. <laughs> they had drinks and charcuterie boards. But the whole, everything was bouncing up and down because of the waves. And it got to a point where I thought I was pretty, you know, solid on sea. I ate some charcuterie board and I vomited all of it up. Happy anniversary, sweetheart. Nine years in, and I'm vomiting charcuterie into the ocean. It was a horrendous experience. Sunset dinner cruise, get out of here. My wife the whole time was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you should be. That was a horrible idea. I didn't say that. I was like, it's okay, sweetheart. As I vomited. You know what it's like to vomit as 30 people are staring at you? It is just... It's not fun. And I'm just honestly thinking, like, if I knew someone I loved in this church was going to go on that cruise and experience what I experienced, would I go on it again just so they wouldn't be alone? Oof. <laughs> would I do that for my wife again? I think it's an honest question, right? Like, the people, first of all, do you even have community in this church like these people do? And if you do... Are you giving, are you sacrificing, are you willing to walk 40 miles or enter seasickness for them? I see this book and I see Luke and Aristarchus and these other Christians are willing to do anything for their friends. Right? Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, I don't have community. This church doesn't really have it for me. But it's because you're only looking to receive. You're only looking for friends who will walk 40 miles for you. But you're not saying, I'll walk 40 miles for you. It's hard, though, isn't it? It'd be hard to walk to D.C. It'd be hard to get on a sunset dinner cruise that's not really a sunset dinner cruise to help someone else. How do you do that? How do you become that kind of friend, especially in church life, when relationships can be hard? You become the kind of friend like Luke and Aristarchus when you are transformed by the friendship you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see Jesus walking not just 40 miles, but the eternal distance from heaven to hell for you, you begin to want to walk for your, your friends. When you see Jesus entering alone, the storm of God's wrath, for you. When you see Jesus saying, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. 
you start saying it to your friends. When your heart is melted by his friendship, you begin to say, I'm coming with you to the hospital. I can't carry all your kids, but I can carry you as you carry for your kids. I'm coming over to help you with the dishes. I'm here for you, even when you have nothing there to give to me. Because Jesus gave to me when I had nothing to give to him. You see, it's the friendship of Christ that fueled Luke and Aristarchus to lock in with Paul and say, I don't care if you're in prison. I don't care if you're going through a hurricane. I don't care if you're facing a riot. I don't care if they're about to kill you and me. I'm with you. Proverbs 27 says, I will never abandon a friend. And Luke and Aristarchus say, like Jesus, we will never abandon you, Paul. That's what church is supposed to be. It's a people that care for you and a people you get to care for. The way we say it around here is RCC is a gospel family. It's not an event, it's a family. Now you might sit here and and be like, that's a compelling vision, Pastor Adam, but I'm brand new. I don't know anyone here. How am I supposed to have these kind of friendships quickly? Did you know the people outside Rome Paul didn't know when he met them? They were strangers. There were some Christians in here at the beginning of Acts 27 that care for Paul, it says. Scholars believe Paul didn't know them before this happened. You see, you can quickly connect with other Christians when you realize we have, we're in the same family. Even if you're a stranger, you're not, really. Well, you say, okay, well, I may be new, and okay, I might have eternal friends here in Christ, but I already have my friends, not in the church. You know, I got my boys from high school. They're a little crazy, but they're my boys. We've been in fantasy football together for 20 years. I got my girls. I don't need church friends. Can I challenge you with this? Do you realize that the church, the friends in the church you're a part of, and the church universally, are the only friends that you will keep forever? They're the only friends that when you take your last breath, the friendship won't end. If that's true, don't you think those are friendships worth investing in? The ancient father, Cyprian, says, you cannot have God as father unless you also have church as mother. What that means is a lot of people want just that individual vertical relationship with God. Just me and him, we're good. Cyprian and and the scriptures say, if you want him, you also need us. You don't get God as dad unless you have us as brother and sister. And so if you are a Christian who's not connected to the eternal family of God, then you are A Frodo without a Sam. You're a Paul with no Luke and no Aristarchus. You're a son or daughter of God that has no brothers and sisters in the family of God. Now, if you're looking for these types of friends, get connected to a gospel community. That's the best way to do it. You can, on your information card, on your chair, just fill it out, turn it in the back. We'll connect you with one. Or you can pick one on your own. Also, don't just be on the periphery of the church coming on Sunday. Join the family. You can do that by going to RCC 101 and learning what membership looks like. It's today after the service. Just head on upstairs. There's tacos. That's great. And you get to hear about what joining our family looks like. And the Bible says, pity the man who falls alone. And I fear that a lot of you, when you fall, you're alone. You have no Christian friends. You have no Luke's, no Aristarchus's. You need it. 
And maybe today you are a part of a gospel community, but you're not really opening up. You're not really being real. You're not being honest. People can't help you if they don't know what you're struggling with. So tell them. Risk vulnerability. And watch God bless you. Paul can keep going in the storm because he's got two brothers who have his back. You've got Luke and Aristarchus and the other Christians. How else does Paul get through the storm? Secondly, if you're going to get through the storm, you need the paradox of God. I'll explain what that means in a second. So Paul and his friends set sail to Rome, and they stop at a few ports, and finally, verse 8, they reach a port called Fair Havens, which sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? We're going to stop at Fair Havens. They, got, they probably got, like, bottomless drinks, nice king-sized beds. Fair Havens? Except the problem is it's not a very fair haven. Calling this port Fair Havens is like the neighborhood I grew up in, near, near where I grew up in. It's called Cinnamon Woods. It was not very cinnamony. It was a tough neighborhood. If you play basketball there, there's a good chance you get in a fight. It's a tough area. Well, Fair Havens is a tough area. It'd be kind of like calling Buffalo a paradise. It's cold up there, man. This port isn't... <laughs> I saw a Buffalo Bills fan shake their head. I'm sorry. <laughs> this port isn't a great spot to stay in the winter. Why? Well, because it just not, doesn't have the resources and the infra- infrastructure to care for these men on this voyage. So the captain of the ship says, we're leaving Fair Havens. It's not a Fair Haven. And we're going to Phoenix, which is a harbor in Crete. Paul, though, verse 10 says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Paul's like, guys, I know we're in like the Motel 6 of ports right now, but Motel 6 is better than being shipwrecked in the middle of the sea because a storm is coming. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, which, I don't know about you, but when an apostle of God says you should do this, I think we should probably do that. They don't. Verse 14, a hurricane hits them as they're on their way to Phoenix. The text says, verse 14, it's a tempestuous wind, a northeaster. One commentator says in the Greek, this could be translated as one hell of a storm. They're stuck in a hell of a storm. And it's so bad, as you read the rest of the text, you find that the, the, the crew members are throwing their cargo overboard. They throw the ship parts overboard. They can't even see the sun or the stars for multiple days. It's so dark. Verse 20 says they lose all hope of being saved. We're definitely going to die, is what they're saying. And they're about to execute the prisoners because if a Roman soldier loses their prisoner, they will be executed. So they're like, we'll kill the prisoners just to be safe. They're certain this is going to be shipwrecked death. Verse 21 Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I think if this verse were a sound, it'd be, mm-hmm, mm-mm-mm, mm. I tried to tell you. But what I want you to focus on is the paradox in the text. Look, look at what Paul says, and this is a wonderful example of how God's sovereignty And humans' responsibility are seamlessly integrated together in one. If you look at verse 22, Paul says to the crew members in the middle of the hurricane, no one's going to die. God told me. He promised. We're going to be all right. In fact, verse 34, Paul says, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. You're not going to be hurt at all. But then look at verse 31. The sailors of the ship are about to jump out the boat. And what does Paul say? 
He says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless you stay in the ship, you'll die. Okay, this is confusing for a second. God promises at the beginning of the the story, none of us are going to die. He says at the end, not a hair will perish from your head. But then Paul also says, in order to stay alive, you got to stay in the ship. Do you see the paradox here? If God has already fixed it, that none of us will die, we will get to Rome, then what we do shouldn't matter, right? We can just do whatever we want. God's already declared it to be true. Paul could have said to the sailors, "Uh, you guys are jumping out the boat? Fine. God said we're getting to Rome. You guys can snorkel for all I care. What we do doesn't matter, he could have said, if God already declared it, right? But no. He's saying you need to stay in the ship. He says we must run the boat aground in the story. Now, if God isn't in control and Paul is completely in control, then he would have been panicked. He would have not been calm. He would not be saying things like, take heart. We'll be fine. How is this paradox happening? It's because Paul believes in God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He believes that every single thing that happens, small things and big things, are determined by the sovereign God and cannot be thwarted. You're getting to Rome. No one's going to die. But he also believes men are responsible, women are responsible for their decisions, that our choices matter, that our choices have consequences, that we are free and responsible in everything we do. In other words, these two things somehow eternally are held together. It's not either or, it's both and. And we tend not to live in the light of that reality, do we? We tend to either believe God is 100% in charge and what we do doesn't matter, so eat, drink, and be merry. We can do whatever we want. We don't need to share the gospel. God's going to save whoever he wants to save. Or I don't need to practice this sermon. I can just wing it because God will do what he wants to do. Fatalist. Or we tend to believe God is 0% in control and I better perform or else. If I fail, it's the end of the world. Intense situations or big presentations or big games. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm stricken with fear. You and I tend to be all or nothing people, don't we? God is 100% in charge and we're 0% in charge. Or, or God is 0% in charge or we're 100% in charge. Or maybe it's 50-50, right? Or maybe it's 80-20. But Paul says, no, it's 100-100. He's in charge and we're responsible. And, you know, this is a theme all throughout the Bible, specifically in the book of Acts. In fact, the language used here in in verse 21 of chapter 27 is the exact same language Luke uses of Peter in Acts chapter 2 when it says, you know, it says here, Luke, Paul says, Paul stood up among them. That same language is used in Acts 2 when Luke says, Peter stood up among them at his first sermon in Pentecost. And you remember what Peter says in his first sermon? He says, Jesus Christ was offered up according to what? The plan of God. And you killed him with lawless hands. So it was the plan of God and you killed him, Peter says. Was Jesus Christ's death on the cross determined by God, planned by God, absolutely certain? Yes. Were the people who crucified Jesus lawless people, wicked, condemned, guilty, accountable? Yes. God ordains what comes to pass through our free choices. 
and it comes together. It's not 50-50, it's not 80-20, it's 100-100. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because it is absolutely crucial when you face storms, when you face difficulties, when you face suffering, that like Paul, you understand this paradox, that what I do, how I respond to this storm matters. And at the same time, no, God has a sovereign plan that will never be thwarted. That he is in complete control right now. If there's any failure, it's because he allowed it to fail. If you notice, Paul is not passive in this text. He's, he's a leader. He's going to the centurion saying, do this, do this, don't do this. But yet at the same time, he's, he's at peace, he's calm. You see, if all of it is already destined totally, then he'd be passive. He'd be cynical. He'd be indifferent. Who cares what we do? God's already rigged it, you know. But if it was all up to him, then he'd be pressured. He'd be frightened. He'd be panicked. But Paul is neither panicked nor passive. He's a leader. He's in charge. Do you see this? And that becomes a reality in your life. You are, you are not passive in storms, and you are not panicked in storms, and you believe I'm accountable for my actions, but God's got it. There's nothing more practical and helpful to believe than to believe God is completely in control and what we do matters. It's empowering because I can't be passive. I need to get to work, but it's consoling because in the end, I can't screw up my life. God's got it in control. I can't mess up his plan for me. Do you see how this is helpful? And if you're panicked right now, if you're anxious ridden, the reality is because you're not thinking. You're not believing that God's in complete control. You think you are. Learn from Paul here this morning. How do we get through a storm? Man, we need the people of God to have us, hold us up. We need the paradox of God to know he's in complete control, but I'm responsible. Thirdly, we need the presence of God. Man, this is probably the most encouraging verse in this section. Verse 23. Paul's in the middle of the storm. This is what he says. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Isn't that a great verse? Could you say that this morning? The God to whom I belong. That's what he says in the middle of his storm. Do you know that's covenant language? God, when he enters into a covenant with his people, says, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's possessive language, right? When I say my Sherry or my Aiden, I say it because they're, there's intimacy there. Those are my people. It would be weird if you were like, oh, my Sherry. Whoa, excuse me? That's my wife, huh? You don't say my blank unless it's intimate. And God, Paul is like, that's my God. God's like, that's my Paul. I know him, his, Paul says. I belong to him. He's committed to me. Paul is not making the mistake you and I often make when we're suffering. You see, when bad things happen to us, we often think, God's punishing me. I failed that exam. This friend is mad at me. I got this bill. Today's been hard because I didn't pray enough. I didn't read my Bible enough. I didn't give enough. Paul doesn't do any of that. Or we say, you know, God just doesn't care. He's, he's not even paying attention. No, no, no. Paul is saying more than ever, I realize God is with me. I'm mine and he's, and, uh, he's mine and I'm his. Paul knows God's love in the midst of the storm. How can you know that same love, that same presence when you face a storm? 
How can you be sure when bad things are happening to you that God is with you? Here's how. Do you know in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus calls himself the true Jonah? He says, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. But one greater than Jonah is here. What is happening? Jesus is calling himself the greater Jonah. And do you remember what happened to Jonah? Jonah was sinning. He was running from God. He gets in a boat, flees from God's presence. God sends a storm, but it's a storm of God's justice, a storm of God's wrath. And this storm is coming after Noah, or excuse me, uh, Judah, Jonah. And Jonah sees the storm, knows he deserves God's judgment. It's his punishment. But he sees that the storm is also endanger, endangering all the other sailors he's with. So Jonah says, throw me into the storm so that all of you can be saved. And that's what they do. They throw him in the middle of the sea. The storm is, is, is ended. And Jonah is completely consumed by the ocean. And the whale, or the fish. And when Jesus Christ says, I'm the ultimate Jonah, do you know what he's saying? He's saying that there is a storm of God's wrath that you deserve. All human beings, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We deserve the storm of God's wrath. But Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, then you can know that I fell into the storm for you. I was the true Jonah. I was consumed by the storm so you could be saved. I was abandoned on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was abandoned in my suffering because I got the suffering that you deserve. So that now, when you suffer, when you face storms, you can know it is not punishment because Jesus bore the punishment that we deserved already. Storms are just part of the brokenness of this world. And God is in that storm with you, and he promises to bring you through on the other side. And when you realize that Jesus was consumed by the ultimate storm, the storm of God's wrath for you, the other storms don't seem so big anymore, do they? When I was a young pastor, I, I started, obviously as a pastor, you minister to people, especially people who are hurting. People who are suffering. People who are facing storms. And I began to, you know, be in the room with people in the hospital who are about to die or people who have just lost a child or just got a cancer diagnosis or whatever trauma or, or difficulty they faced. And an older pastor pulled me aside and said, before you walk into the room, here's the one thing you need to know when you minister to people who are suffering. Shut up. They don't need a sermon. People who are suffering don't need a theological, you know, treatise or paper on, on why, they're, why they're suffering, you know what they need? They just need someone next to them. Someone who's there with them and in the suffering. So be quiet and just be there. And I just want to say to you, if, if you want to know the answer as to why you're suffering right now, why, why God sent this storm your way, you're probably not going to get it this side of heaven. But what you will get is someone who's next to you. And it's not just the Christian friend to your left or right. It's the God of the universe. Only Christianity, out of all the religions in the world, says that God is with us in our suffering. 
That thought is so baffling to other religions. You know, in fact, Muslims believe that God would never suffer and God's prophets would not suffer. In fact, they believe that Jesus Christ, the prophet of God, when he was about to be crucified, he was switched at the last second with Judas. And Judas was made to appear like Jesus and Judas was the one crucified because he deserved it. Because God's prophet would never suffer. That's a baffling thought to think God would, would lower himself to feel pain. But only Christianity has the audacity to claim that God lowered himself, not just to the level of mankind, but to the level of suffering on our behalf. That he has experienced whatever suffering or storm you now experience. Have you ever lost a child? So has God. On the cross. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been stabbed in the back? Are you experiencing any pain in your body right now? Are you facing poverty? Are you facing death? So has God. So has God. He has faced all of it perfectly. He doesn't just know it. The scriptures say he is with it, with us in it. What does Jesus do in Acts 23 when Paul is stuck in prison discouraged? The text says the Lord Jesus stood by him. He just was next to him. He only said one, one sentence, really. And that's what you need to know. In the storm, you have a God who's in it with you. And that's what make, makes Paul poised in this storm. God is with him. I know he is my God, and I am his son. The presence of God was sustain you in suffering. I love the way John Newton puts it. He says, his love in time past forbids me to think. He'd leave me at last in troubles to sink. Be gone, unbelief. My Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, then he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. Man, if you want to get through a storm, you just need the people of God, the paradox of God. You need the presence of God, and you have it if you're in Christ. And last point, this is really brief. You need to trust in the promise of God. If you reach the end of the text, Paul gets through the storm, he gets through a snake butt, he gets through a shipwreck, and verse 14, and so we came to Rome. Ah, God's promise is fulfilled. Paul's been waiting. Two years in prison, one month at sea, three months on a remote island in Malta. That's a long time. You know, Paul wrote in the book of Romans three years before this, I want to get to Rome. He's been waiting three years. Jesus promised you'll get to Rome two and a half years ago. That's been a lot of waiting. But God's promise has been fulfilled. And I just want to encourage you this morning. If God says it, he will do it. God's promises for Paul are promises for you. And friend, I just want to tell you, if you're not a Christian, this is the promise that we offer up to you that you can build your life on. That Jesus Christ lived the life you should have lived. He died the death we deserved. And he rose on our behalf, defeating the grave on our behalf. The promise is that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And if you turn to him, he promises you not to get to Rome, but to get you to heaven. And so my question for you is, are you building your life on the promise of God? 
Let today be the day you, you come to him and accept his promise. And if you've already received that promise, if you're here and you're a Christian, let me encourage you, Rome is coming. Heaven is coming. You might have to go through a hurricane, but you're going to get there. He promised. You want to stay calm, rest in the promise. Bury yourself in God's promises. If you want gospel chill like we talked about a few weeks ago, bury yourself in his promises. And he will sustain you through the people of God, friends in the church who care for you, have your back, Luke and Aristarchus's, and ultimately, the friend you have in Christ will sustain you. You need the paradox of God, that, the, that what I do matters. So I got to work hard, but also God's in control. So we're going to be all right. I'm cool. You need the presence of God, that God suffered on my behalf, and he is with me as I suffer. And I can go to him in prayer and talk to him, and he stands by me. And we need the promise of God. There are so many good promises in the Bible, but the one I want to highlight right now is that you're going to get to Rome. You're going to get to heaven. So what, what matters about the storms? You have him, and he'll get you there. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I, I recognize as I study this text, I'm so uh, fickle in my belief that when storms come, I tend to doubt your, your love for me. I tend to think you're absent. I tend to turn inward instead of turning outward towards you. Lord, would you help us to trust you as we face the storms of life, whether that's a torn ACL or marital conflict or financial trouble or um, difficulties in the church? Help us to trust you as we face these storms. Help us to, to face them the way Paul faced them, confidently knowing you're with me in them. And Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room right now that does not know you, that isn't a storm, but has no God to be with them, to, to promise them safe passage through it. I pray that they would come to Jesus today, that throw their, themselves on your mercy and be changed by you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.